Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Douglas Wilcox, and you may be familiar with Douglas' work testing boats and equipment, and you may have seen his test results and his trip reports online through various Facebook posts, his website, and in magazines like Ocean Paddler over the years. Well, Douglas brings a natural curiosity to kayaking, and that definitely shows in today's interview. Douglas is a storyteller in every sense of the word, so get ready for us to cover a lot of ground. Before we dive into today's episode, we have a special opportunity for you. Simon Osborne was a guest on episode 41, and he and James Stevenson have created a great online coaching resource in OnlineSeaKayaking.com. As of right now, they have 14 different courses and over 30 hours of high-quality video. Well, they've agreed to offer a special deal for Paddling the Blue podcast listeners. So if you're not already a subscriber, here's your chance. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTB, as in Paddling the Blue podcast, so PTB podcast, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. You'll find a link in the show notes, so definitely check that out, OnlineSeaKayaking.com. PTB podcast is your code. Also, thank you to listeners who've taken the time to support the show by visiting our website at www.paddlingtheblue.com and clicking the Buy Me a Coffee link at the bottom of the right hand of the page. I really appreciate your support, so thank you very much. So with that, enjoy today's episode with Douglas Wilcox. Hello, Douglas. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hello, John. I'm very, very pleased to join you. Thank you very much for asking. So you've had quite a history as a paddler and in the academic world. So tell us about you. Well, I come from a west of Scotland family where there were fishermen and crofters. So there's a maritime in the, my blood, as it were. And I started sailing when I was about five years old, and I'm now 68 years old. So that wasn't yesterday. And I when I was at school, there was the 1964 Olympics and an Ayrshire man, and I went to an Ayrshire school called Alistair Wilson, was competing for the British K1, what we called canoe racing in those days. And as a young schoolboy, I think I would have been about nine years old, I was absolutely blown away by the fact that here was a local person paddling a canoe and we all at school drew canoes and it was difficult drawing the paddles and that got my interest in paddling whereas my family background had been in sailing and then I went to a scout camp in 1967 to the island of Seal off the west coast of Scotland and that was where I first paddled on the sea in a fiberglass long decked kayak and with the mountains of Mull on the other side of the Firth of Lorne it was just such an amazing formative experience. So that was when I started sea kayaking but then there was a long long gap until about uh, 2002 for various reasons. I so many interests in other water sports. But since 2002, I've really taken to sea kayaking. And we can maybe talk about what I like about sea kayaking, particularly as an activity. Yeah. So what is it that drew you to that specifically? Well, my family were all into big yachts. My father and two uncles had big, expensive yachts. And basically, the way that they were constructed, there there was a lot of... uh, what you would call $50 bills in a sort of composite under the water stuck to the hull. And every minute of every day, $50 bills would be washing off as the composite dissolved in the sea. And it cost my father and my uncles a fortune. And I was always frustrated because the boats were so expensive. You never wanted to go close into the shore in case you hit a rock. And my cousin actually hit a rock with my uncle's yacht and that kind of put me off yachting quite badly (laughs) and I so what I like about sea kayaking is it's an incredibly complete activity there's a physical side strength and endurance there's a technique side being able to paddle effectively for a long time there's a an intellectual side which involves 
planning and understanding weather and tides. There's also an intellectual side that can be rewarded by understanding the geography, understanding the history. And also there's a psychological side. I particularly like bad weather when it's windy and wavy. And I've got to admit, I'm a, I suppose I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I do like paddling in rough water and I quite often paddle on my own in rough water. And I, so in all these different levels, sea kayaking just rewards you in so many different ways. Having said that, I also still sail dinghies. I've got an RS Aero, which is a modern equivalent of a, a laser single-hander. That's a tricky boat to sail. I capsize it many times. <laughs> I have been windsurfing since 1977, and actually that, I would say, is what really defines me. I'm not a sea kayaker first and foremost. If I get the chance, I'll go windsurfing. Even in my late 60s, I'm still windsurfing in force eight and uh, using very small boards and very small sails. And if you think edging a sea kayak is a skill to learn, well, edging a 82-litre waveboard travelling at 25 knots, it's, it's another level. And so I really get a lot out of uh, these other things. I surf ski and I also paddleboard. And I, I think basically I even swim and all of these things feed into each other. I mean, if I'm catching a wave in my sea kayak, I, I mean, I'm, I'm using all the skills that I've learned catching waves in the surf ski. I'm also using the skills that I've learned catching waves in the windsurfer. So it's a, a kind of everything feeds in and joins in. So I, I just like being on the sea. So you you have a natural curiosity, um, and you seem to have spent a, quite a bit of time in quite a few different types of craft. What haven't you paddled yet and that you would like to? Uh, well, I did do white water as well. I forgot to mention that. I did that for about 12 years. I had a love-hate relationship with white water. Two people, young people I knew when I had just left school died in a whitewater rapid, which was way, way beyond their abilities. And they were in the wrong type of kayaks and they got pinned and they both drowned. And that put me off paddling for a long, long time. That was why I spent so much time sailing and windsurfing and ignoring paddling on the sea, actually. But then a friend got into whitewater kayaking and I thought, do you know, if I got skilled enough at whitewater kayaking, that would make a great difference for going into tide races and things. Because I'd always thought I would like to go sea kayaking, but at the time I was also doing mountaineering. And there's only much, so much time you've got. And I had a pretty full-on job. I was a medical academic, so I was a qualified doctor who also had a science degree. And I thoroughly enjoyed my job. And I didn't have a lot of free time. So everything had to be squeezed in. But that job, because I've hinted at I was a medical researcher, that hints at uh, curiosity. And that is sort of behind a lot of the things that I've taken up, looking at different ways of exploring the sea and the ocean and the, the land that surrounds it. And also, I just going back a moment or two to my sailing experience, when I did start sea kayaking seriously in 2002, a couple of my friends were very heavily into windsurfing. And we straight away realised that what we wanted on the sea kayaks was a small sail. And I've always been interested in history. And, you know, when I look back at the evolution of kayak touring on the sea in Scotland, all the early people going back to the sort of late Victorian times had sails on their canoes or their kayaks. And we tried cutting down windsurfer sails to see if we could get something going, but windsurfer sails were not ideal. The cloth was too heavy. They were the wrong shape at the head, which is what we were cutting off. And our experiments didn't really 
succeed, I've got to say. But I then started researching it and I discovered that, in fact, in Tasmania, kayak sailing had never died. In the UK, the British-style sea kayak, which came in and very quickly it became nice, shiny, fiberglass composite construction, people didn't want to drill holes. So that was the end of the sails. In, in Britain, but the Tasmanians kept it alive. And through my blog and through Facebook and through a, a sort of traditional sea kayak forum, I met a wonderful man called Mick McRobb from Australia. And Mick was developing some of these Tasmanian small triangular sails which were mounted far forward in sea kayaks. And we got chatting and uh, he said, you know, I'm really needing people to help test these. And I said, Mick, I'm your man, send them over. So he sent me about 10 different prototype sales. And I realized it was just such a fun thing to add another element into sea kayaking. And in our little group, I'm not in a club, we have a, a, a very loose group of people who paddle together. We all have a common mind. We all turn back at the same time. We all enjoy the same things. We do take new members of the group on occasionally, but we're primarily very selfish because we all had very demanding jobs and it was a release. So we weren't like a, a club that had the social purpose of bringing more people into the sport. But very, very quickly, all of the people in our little group had sales. And we began to generate quite a lot of interest. But rather sadly, I then discovered just how conservative some members of the CCAC community are. Some people told me I was ruining the Inuit heritage of kayaking and others said I was cheating <laughs> and I couldn't understand this who I've, I certainly wasn't using a sail in a race when someone else didn't have a sail uh, to my mind I was already using the tides I was using the swells I was catching waves why not use the wind yeah and then who, who's making the rules that's the thing, you see, I, I don't like rules. I would never have survived in the armed forces. I did very well in medicine, but I, I couldn't understand why you wouldn't have a sail in a kayak. And a, a gentleman who was a good bit younger than me actually started moaning on about the heritage thing and how I was spoiling the Inuit purity of kayaking on the sea. So I did some more research and fortunately I found a book with an Inuit kayak with a small triangular sail mounted <laughs> in a vertical tube right up at the bow. And if it got too windy, they had a very simple way of unrigging it. They just extended their paddle forward and pushed the whole sail in the mast up and it came out the tube. And then it came back in the water on a line and they grabbed it and bundled it up. So, so the Inuit were using sails as well. Yeah, so all along you were historically accurate and didn't know it. Well, I didn't know it uh, when, when I first came across that kind of resistance. So speaking of history, you've done a fair amount of research into kayak history. So share some of that research with us. Yeah, I mean, this was just by accident. When I started sea kayaking, I bumped into a gentleman called Duncan Winning, who is the most was the most marvellous man. Very sadly, he died a couple of years ago. And straight away, we hit it off because we were not just interested in current kayaks. We were interested in why we were paddling something like this. And I very quickly realised that actually Duncan was a very modest man because what had happened was a Scottish academic, Ken Taylor, had brought an Inuit, a West Greenland Inuit kayak that had been made for him back to Scotland in the 1960s. And he was a member of the same club that Duncan Winning was. And Duncan made drawings of this kayak 
And those drawings Duncan freely shared with the sea kayaking community. And those drawings went on to uh, basically create the Anas Acuta kayak, which I Valley made. I've paddled the Anas Acuta and I almost bought one, but I was just too heavy for it at the time. And I so I bought a Nordcap LV, another Valley boat. But Duncan also then said, why was I paddling with a pair of shovels? <laughs> and I looked at my big Lendl Nordcap blades and big Lendl Nordcap blades, huge things that were far too big for me. And what I saw was this funny wooden stick that he had. Now I knew exactly what it was, but it was the first time I'd seen one. And the last thing I was expecting was for Duncan to say, well, try this. So I tried it. And I just couldn't believe it. The pain in my shoulder and my wrists, which I have because I've got arthritis and I was struggling with a big paddle, went away. And I found this light, beautiful creation in my hands. So again, going back to my roots in, in medicine and medical research, I've always had an open mind about things. You have to in science. And so I still to this day paddle with Greenland paddles, I, I paddle with Euro paddles and I also paddle with wing paddles and I use them at different times for different things but basically for sea kayaking unless I'm just mucking about in the surf I will through choice go for uh, the Greenland paddle. On my surf ski I've actually used my Greenland paddle, it wasn't the most stable of my uh, trips on the surf ski, but I enjoyed it. And actually, there is some similarity in the way that you can use a Greenland paddle to the proper wing paddle stroke, where the, the blade enters near your toes, and then as it comes back, you allow it to fly out to the side. And you can actually paddle a Greenland paddle like that as well. And I so these were all things that I learned from Duncan and we had just so many great conversations. Duncan loved to talk. Maybe he's passed a wee bit of that over to me as well. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, he, he, he loved to talk and we used to have great conversations and CCAC history has been something which I've always had an interest in and another person graham mccarrith who i know you've also talked with sure i uh, he's the uh, managing director of piranha and now also of pnh he has an extraordinary interest in the history of all sorts of canoeing and other watercraft you've actually done quite a bit of testing many of our listeners may be familiar with your testing work in ocean paddler and other publications and and actually, a lot of that testing has been done for P&H in the last few years, if I recall correctly. Well, well, the test I, I test all sorts of kayaks. I mean, I've tested Valley, Rockpool, P&H, you name it. But arrangement with P&H is slightly different. After several chats with Graham McKerrith and various other people in P&H, and the equivalent person is now Matthew Wilkinson in P&H, it was apparent that they would quite like some, in addition to just having a test, they would like some very specific feedback and suggestions. And that has continued to this day. Now, I am not paid by them. I'm not one of their professionals. In fact, it's a great arrangement because I can quite openly criticise things if I don't like them. And th th they like me for that because, you know, sometimes you get a test. I remember there was a test report of the PH hammer, which was basically a, a very interesting short polythene sea kayak for using in very rough white water conditions, rock hopping, etc. And the tester had actually tested it in a reservoir and given it a glowing report. <laughs> so I don't do that. I, I, all my tests for PH are extended and they are always very happy to take on the negative sides of a test. And generally, they're not big things. They tend to be very minor by the time uh, they come out. But I do remember, for example, when the Cetus first came out, I was the first person to identify that there was a problem with the uh, slider for the 
new rope skeg and I could see that it was sticking but I couldn't quite understand why so I'd been in touch with various people at PNH including Graham and eventually they discovered the cause and it was a stainless steel rod that was cut and to, to mount the slider on but it was cut from a coil and as you got into the inside of the coil as you cut more and more of the short rods off this long coil the curve became greater and if your kayak had been made with one of the bits from the inside of the coil of stainless steel wire that was the one that was likely to stick and so I, they changed the design and it's now a composite rod rather than a stainless steel rod that the thing slides on and I feel that was a a nice contribution that I made to it and I'm just finished doing a, a, a two-year test of the PNH Volan and that kayak I've absolutely fallen in love with and I, it's great because there are certain things in that boat that were suggestions that I made to Graham McCarrith that time I was on the Solway and we had the, that long chat that the tide went out on me. <laughs> Graham couldn't see the tide going out. <laughs> Your research has actually helped me as well. I had a Scorpio, and I, I had that same problem with the Skeg slider. So thank you for helping with that. Oh, I'm very, very pleased about that, John. Now, <laughs> what I've been particularly interested in is working with a certain type of company. There are some companies where someone will design something and it is absolutely perfect. And it's very difficult. They've put so much emotional energy and effort and intellectual time into perfecting the design that they're unwilling to see that there's anything wrong. And as a user, I can't influence that type of company. But then there are other people like Mick McRobb that I was telling you about. And he was an exceptional man, a very, very original designer and a very skilled sailmaker. He, he, he was one of these multi-talented people, but he was always looking for input. So he was a pleasure to work with. And I made several suggestions that came into Flat Earth Sales. And in fact, P&H for a while actually supplied Flat Earth Sales with some of their kayaks. But there are other companies as well. I worked with Lendl Paddles and the time I was working at the university I had access to some early heart rate monitors and things so I tried their new kinetic wing paddle over a measured course down at the Solway where I, I have a, a, a holiday lodge and I compared it with a, a normal Lendl Paddle and I measured my heart rate and measured how quickly and everything and that's the thing about a scientist OCD you know you measure things and I like <laughs> measuring things and I was just so sad when Alistair Wilson of Lendl retired shortly after that because there was nothing I liked better than a visit to his factory it was absolutely wonderful and he didn't just make the paddles he actually made the tools that made the paddles mm. I mean the, the, the skills of these people and remember this was someone who'd been an Olympic competitor and how he could turn round when he retired from you know competitive sport into becoming a creator of things was a wonderful story but then after Alistair retired there was a whitewater paddle manufacturer called VE Paddles which uh, were very big in the UK and Stu Morris the designer for them he also came to me wondering if I would test a, a paddle and I tested it and gave him the feedback and then he said you know I'd quite like to have some ideas for some future designs so I gave him a whole lot of ideas and in actual fact he came up with a future design that had incorporated some of those ideas and it's a paddle it's the Euro paddle that I still use today and another company uh, may not be well known in North America but KCS which is a Scottish company that makes kayak accessories like trolleys and roof rack adapters and J-bars and things like that well I'd worked with them for a long time with their trolley because I've still got the original trolley I bought from them in 2002 but I thought it had some ways that it could be improved 
and I suggested that to them. What did they do? They made a Mark II trolley. And I think they're now up about Mark VII trolley. And several of these trolleys have got suggestions that I had made through using them. For example, one of the ferries that I like taking my kayak on, and this is a thing about Scotland with the islands, if you've got limited time, as I did have when I was at work, you could actually take a ferry out to the island. You didn't need to take your car. You just paid a passenger ticket. And if they had space, they would let you wheel your ferry on free. And one of the ferries to what are called the small isles was obviously a small ferry and it wasn't roll on and roll off. So you had to walk it on and then you had to push the kayak back off because not all the cars would get off at the particular island that you wanted off. So you would need to just reverse the kayak off. And these ferries have got ramps with bumps. And what I discovered was as you reverse the trolley over the bump, the whole thing collapsed and it twisted round. And I developed an idea that would prevent that happening, which is still in KCS trolleys today. And then Ronnie Weir, the guy behind KCS, began to look at the fun we were having kayak sailing. And he came with us one time on a very windy day up the Sound of Mull and he didn't have a sail and we all had sails. And he was just blown away literally by how much fun we were having. And so he decided that his company was going to do a sale. So he asked me what I'd be looking for in a sale, what I sort of measurement, how many battens, that sort of thing. And I gave him some suggestions based on my previous experience. And he took it away and turned it over. And he said, I'll need to deal with a professional sailmaker. It's too difficult sewing up sailcloth. And I suggested that he contact a, a company called Owen Sales. And Owen Sales had started off in Scotland making windsurfing sails back in the 1980s. And I've still got one of their sails to this day. And when Ronnie went to see them, they were very, very keen to take this tiny little job on because nowadays they make sales for huge, sometimes multi-million pound racing yachts. And yet they still remembered their roots and small boats and windsurfers. So amazingly, it only took two prototypes to get it right. And that was partly because we started off with some good ideas and partly because Owen were such expert sailmakers. Now, other people in Europe who have seen the success of flat earth sales from Australia have just done a blatant copy, literally stitch for stitch. And I, and I think that isn't good, but this is actually a, a very, very different design, different baton arrangement and different boom arrangement and different area and cut in a different way. And it performs differently. It's not quite as easy to use as the sort of more beginner friendly flat earth sail and yet it's a bit more user friendly than the sort of professional flat earth sail. So all these different companies I've enjoyed working with because the owners and the people behind the company have been open to new ideas and I think I can bring them ideas because of my experience of different branches of water sport. And I discovered when I was writing my tests, I would put in little things, you know, suggesting improvements. And some of the manufacturers got in touch with me and said, oh, I'd love to hear more about that. And other manufacturers just said, oh, nonsense is designed like this because it's perfect. So I enjoyed writing for those magazines. Interestingly, the magazines then started asking me to do sea kayak touring accounts, you know, just trip reports, basically, with mm -hmm. illustrated photographs and diagrams and things. And I enjoyed doing that. And another thing that I did for the magazines was, and it's, I suppose it's my response to not teaching many beginners, was just to sort of try and help people. In each of my stories, I would explain why I did something or why I changed my mind about a route in the middle of this expedition. Because 
I made it realistic. They were actually real accounts of a, an individual expedition. Some of the magazines, Ocean Paddler, uh, Rich Parkin of Ocean Paddler got very interested in the idea of expanding that. So I did several articles uh, about epics that I'd had where things had uh, potentially gone wrong. And I told people how I dealt with it and the decision-making process at the time and what mistakes I had made that had led up to that and what were the right things that I did to get out of that. You had one of those epics with your story about the knee, so let's hear about that one. We had paddled out to Col, which is an island off the most western part of the Scottish mainland, Ardnamurchan, and when we got to Col, we spent the first night uh, on its northwest coast and we explored all sorts of bays and things. We weren't in a rush and we landed on the island of Gunna, which is a little island between Col and its neighbour Tyree. Very exposed. Tyree's the windiest place in Britain and we just thoroughly enjoyed the windswept sand dunes. There were huge sand dunes on it because of the strong wind and in the evening I climbed up the sand dune to get a photo of the sunset and my daughter shouted out Dad! Dad! There's a monkey whale just breached! And I turned round but too quickly and my foot was anchored in the soft sand and I, I spun round, something snapped in my knee and I fell head over heels to the bottom which I don't know, it was maybe about 30 metres high this June. And when I landed at the bottom, there was something very wrong with my lower leg. My foot was pointing backwards and it was white and cold. And I was in agony. And I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do here? I had a VHF radio, but I already knew there was no VHF reception. I had a mobile phone and I knew there was no mobile reception. One of my friends offered to paddle over to the mainland, which wasn't, sorry, paddle over to Tyree mainland, which wasn't that far. I had a PLB and I knew if I activated that, that a helicopter would be sent. But I also knew it was a three hour flight for the helicopter to Gunna from Prestwick or Stornoway, it was equidistant. And I was in so much agony and I knew that the artery in my leg was being compressed. And that was why my leg was cold and white. So I knew I had to do something quickly. So I decided I'm not going to fire off the PLB just yet. I put it back myself. One of my friends who was with us on the trip was a, an orthopaedic vet and I'd rather hope that he might help me, but he fainted because it was, looked so horrible. <laughs> So I was left there. My daughter, she had to go back to her tent. She couldn't stand the sight of it either. And my friend Jim sat beside me. And I managed to twist my leg round a bit. And actually it went back with a very satisfying clunk as my foot came forward. But unfortunately my kneecap was round the back, not at the front. Wow. So I had to try and drag my kneecap over the kind of depression in the main leg bone at the bottom of the femur where it kind of sits. And I couldn't do it because my muscles had gone into spasm. And then I realised that because my ligaments had all been broken, my knee was a bit more floppy than it usually is. So I got Jim to shovel sand out from under, with his hands, from underneath my knee and I hyperextended my knee by pushing down where my kneecap should have been. And that basically shortened the distance that my tendon that went over my kneecap down onto my tibia in the lower leg had to travel. And I got it back in. And then Jim brought me a couple of spare tent poles and some duct tape. And I duct taped these splints up. And then I thought, oh, I need some painkiller now. This is so sore. And I looked around for my whiskey, but unfortunately my friend David had drunk all my whiskey because <laughs> he was so upset. So I had no painkillers. But then I thought, well, actually, what would I do if I called the helicopter now? Three hours to hospital and they would just put cold compress on it or something. It's, you couldn't operate on something that had been so traumatised just straight away. So I thought, well, actually, if my leg's inside a keep kayak just lying in the bottom of it, it'll be fine. 
So I decided just to stay and we stayed that night and my friends helped me into the kayak the next day and I paddled up the west coast or the east coast of Col. We had a second, another camp at the top end of Col and they helped me out and they made my tea and they got the tent up for me and everything. And then after that, we had another day paddling all the way back to Ardnamurkin and then I had to drive home which was about a six seven hour drive home to the hospital unfortunately it was an automatic car and i so i didn't need my injured leg i then had knee surgery after that which is when duncan winning came to see me and i realized actually that what i'd done was i had got myself out of a situation and i'm independent and there's good and bad about that you have to know when you really need to ask for help. Don't be too proud. Ask for help earlier rather than later. But actually, I would still do the same today. I, I was on land when it happened and everything was doable. This sort of spread around Scotland a bit and I got invited to give several guest lectures over the subsequent years to the Edinburgh University Wilderness Medicine Society. And I always finished it off with this graphic story. And actually, I've in the, the proper medical one, I was a wee bit more graphic than just the description that I've given here, because there was a few other things that I didn't mention here for the sake of those readers who have a stomach like my friend David's. <laughs> and so some of the graduate uh, doctors and student doctors and also uh, emergency technicians were so moved by this story that I gave, <laughs> two of them actually fainted on one of the lectures. <laughs> they just slid down off their chairs. <laughs> in, your, uh, in your life as a tester, what has been your biggest discovery when conducting testing? Well, one was a real surprise. And that was I was testing a kayak from uh, Scandinavia, uh, a 0.65 rotomolded kayak. And it had been marketed as a beginner's kayak. And no sooner I sat in it, I realized this is not a beginner's kayak. What had happened was when you rotomold kayaks, sometimes they come out the mold smaller than you were originally expecting as the plastic cools and normally they make allowance for that and it's a very difficult calculation and these molds for rotomolded boats are extremely expensive. They're much more expensive than the mold for a composite GRP kayak. So clearly this company were in a, a bit of a pickle because they had developed this rotomolded boat and yet it wasn't a, a price point that would appeal to beginners and yet it wasn't beginner friendly. And then I discovered, gosh, this kayak goes really, really quickly. So I got back in touch with them and I suggested, why don't you change the marketing of this to a fitness kayak? Well, that's a good idea. And they did. And they sold plenty of them, <laughs> but to a different market. And that was just pure serendipity that although it was, it turned out just too small and tippy for a recreational kayak, just by chance, the design was a success for fitness paddlers. So that was, that was just one of the, the, the strangest things that came out of a test. <laughs> so where do you see sea kayaking going in terms of innovation? I think that the designs are going to change. For a long time, the ideal has been a boat substantially over five metres for touring, but that increases the length, it increases how difficult it is to handle on land, it increases difficulty handling in certain sea conditions. A, a long boat is supposedly faster than a shorter boat, and I accept that, particularly with the FSK style of sea kayak, the fast sea kayak designs pioneered in this country by Rockpool. And it's uh, an undoubted observation from literally years of paddling in groups. If you're paddling in a group, you're not actually paddling very quickly. It's not like someone setting out to break the record for paddling around an island or something like that, where you would want an FSK. And in my experience, certain short kayaks, actually because of steep overhangs rather than the long drawn out overhangs of the traditional British style kayaks like Nordcaps and Cetuses, that type of kayak, 
the steeper bow and stern does actually mean that the waterline length isn't quite so short. And I think that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed paddling the PH Volan so much. It's a short, handleable kayak. And I was amazed that I was paddling with people with PH Quests, North Shore Ocean kayaks, big touring kayaks, and I was keeping up fine with them. And yet, as soon as we got into a play situation and a, a little tide race coming out of a lock or something, I was in there straight and making the most of it, and they were having great difficulty manoeuvring. And I think that a, a kind of shorter design, like these modern ones, and other manufacturers have them as well, but PH have really hit it, their sweet spot with this Volan. It is a true all rounder. In fact, it's such a true all rounder that I've now sold my PH. Cetus, my longer kayak, but even more surprisingly, I've sold my PH Ares, the short sea ply kayak. Now, partly it was because they were traditional layup and I was finding it difficult to move them, but equally, I realized that the overlap that the Volan had with each of them meant that I would only use the Cetus very rarely and I would only use the Ares very rarely. So, I've actually gone from having two sea... Actually, that's not quite true. I've got quite a lot of kayaks because I didn't <laughs> sell my Nordcap LV and I've still got the Evolution Nomad. I think I might have another one somewhere. I can't remember. Anyway, but I, I basically only had two types of kayaks, long ones and short ones. And now I've got one mid-size one. So what is it specifically about that Volan and its design that you feel has made it uh, that superior? The thing that I've noticed about it, John, is that it is a chined design. Going back to the Anasakuta, going back to the design that Ken Taylor back, brought back from West Greenland. And as a chined design, it catches waves when you're going downwind. And some time ago, we do a regular winter crossing from Ayrshire over to the island of Arran and get the ferry back just as it gets dark. And it's about 36 kilometres and the crossing is about 12, the open, the longest open crossing is about 12 kilometres because there's a couple of islands in between. And on that open crossing of 12 kilometres, we're quite often wanting to do it with the wind behind us and the waves behind us. And the Aries very often is quicker than the Cetus because it catches more waves. And I think that one of the joys of the PH Volan is it catches waves with these chines. And so I was having no difficulty sometimes overtaking the Cetus going downwind and downwave. And I think the chines add, and the tail rocker do add to that ability to catch waves. And I, that's, I think think the reason but I'm not a kayak designer I'm a kayak paddler and so you would really need to throw that back to the designers in PH and, and and the other manufacturers and actually we're truly spoiled for choice these days John because when I bought my first composite sea kayak which was in 2002 there really wasn't a big choice and in those days it really depended on what your local stockist had. For example, you might buy an NDK Explorer or my local stockist was a PH dealer. So you might buy a PH Quest or if your local stockist was a Valley dealer, you might buy a, a Nordka. And these were big boats and, and they certainly weren't day boats. And in fact, sometimes you had to weigh them down to sink them a bit, to paddle in, in windy conditions if you weren't laden. I think my learning would have been accelerated very, very much if I had learned in some of these more modern, shorter boats. And some traditional kayakers don't necessarily like them because there's no doubt that if you look at an Aries or if you look at the Volan, you will use the skeg more than you will in a longboat like a PH Quest or a Valley Nordcap. 
and some people think you should use the skeg as little as possible. Well, I take completely the opposite view. I'll use a skeg whenever I want, thank you. If I'm on a windsurfer, I wouldn't dream of being on a windsurfer without a skeg. I, if I'm on my paddleboard, I've got a skeg. If I'm in my aero dinghy, well, I've actually got a movable skeg, I've got the rudder. And so I think that if you have an open mind to these shorter designs that clearly aren't as directionally stable as a long kayak, the, the trade-off and extra manoeuvrability just for using a bit more skeg or a bit, adjusting your skeg a wee bit more often is definitely worthwhile. I understand where people are coming from. I mean, my very first time in the P&H Cetus, I knew it was a boat that I was going to buy. And as soon as I'd handed the test boat back, I bought one. The Volan was different. My first few trips in it, I, I, I didn't quite gel with it initially because I was using the skeg a bit more. It was very windy and it was flat water. And sometimes if it's windy and there's waves, you don't notice a skeg problem. And it was flat water and I hadn't got the boat loaded quite right and I just didn't gel with it. But over the course of the four days, as I realized I had to move the skeg a wee bit more and I had to alter where I'd put my heavy items in the boat, all of a sudden it just came alive and I realized, actually, I'm having more fun here than the guys in the Cetuses. So you hit a key word there, skeg. So if you ask 10 paddlers which is better, a skeg or rudder, you'll get 10 different answers and start a few arguments. So where do you stand on I, the debate? Well, I like them both. I like them both. I've got a, I've got a rudder on my surf ski, and I, I've, I don't have one, but I keep threatening to buy one. I, and I, I would love to have a Taran 16, and it's got a rudder. And I, it depends on how the boat is designed. I mean, my first rock pool, Alaw, came without a skeg. And I didn't notice not having a skeg initially because I was only paddling it in rough water. And then one day I went round a long peninsula in Skye and it was fine on the windy side because of the waves and you can change direction and it'll make correction strokes very easily in waves, the rough water, you know, when the bow comes out, the stern comes out, the boat's much more easily turned. But as soon as we turned round the headland and came back with the offshore wind, so we were in the lee of the peninsula, the strong wind, flat water, the boat handled like a dog. And so what had been a fun play boat in rough water without a skeg was unpleasant. And I wrote that up in my test at the time. And actually, to their credit, I, Mike Webb and Aled I, from Rockpool did put a skeg into, or offer it as an option, first of all, into the Aloe and the Aloe Bach. And actually, I heard later on that the vast majority of them were sold with skegs. So their testing had obviously been done in the very rough tide races at Anglesey. And so this hadn't come about, but they were obviously looking at it as a playboat for the sea and didn't think that people would buy them, wanting them to be all round. So I bought the Rockpool Alaw to go with my PH Quest to use as a kind of day boat and an occasional weekend boat and a fun boat. But actually, it wasn't as versatile as a more recent design like the Volan or some of Rockpool Kayak's more recent designs because without the skeg, it was very limited if you wanted to tour with it, which wasn't in the original design brief, of course. But people being people buy kayaks and attempt to use them for what they want to use. So you do need to think very carefully before you buy a kayak. And one of the th things I always say at the bottom of my tests is, for goodness sake, don't buy a kayak because of a test review. And I remember one guy had bought a Cetus MV and he lived in a country uh, without a P&H dealer. So it had to be transferred overland for hours and hours and hours. And it finally arrived and he didn't fit it because his legs were longer than mine and his feet were bigger. And that was a salutary lesson. Always sit in a kayak, never mind paddle it in the water. And I've just been so lucky to be able to paddle so many different manufacturers' boats and different models of each manufacturer. And it, it does help. And I think it lets me feel things when paddling a kayak because I'm not a, a 
professional coach who will just subconsciously adapt to almost everything. Because I'm less skilled than the professional, I can feel differences. And if I can feel them, then a novice is going to feel them even more profoundly. So the business going back to the rock pool a la without the skeg. By that stage, I was fairly competent paddler. I mean, I was paddling in strong winds and rough water, but a beginner would have found it even more difficult. And I've always made sure when I buy a kayak now, even if I'm buying a light one, that I buy one with glitter in the deck. Not because I was a teenager in the early 70s when glitter was a thing. (laughs) Not that I ever had any glitter clothing or... (laughs) makeup or anything but of course not. <laughs> I, 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 I simply because I've discovered over the years I can't count how many kayaks I've bought and sold but I've discovered that the glitter ones sell just like that whereas the plain colored ones don't interesting so All right. tip of the week if you want to have anything from this uh, uh, podcast that's the thing to remember glitter in your next order alright I'm writing that down right now <laughs> oh, thanks, John. So you've probably had some unconventional thinking um, from your years of testing. What would you say that you think is probably different from what many other paddlers think? Everyone does different things when they paddle and, and paddle f- to get what they want out of it. I've ended up doing a lot of my paddling on my own, and so I need to be self-sufficient. And so I was one of the very first paddlers in Scotland to get myself a PLB at the time, people said, oh, no, 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 you need your you need your flares, you know. That's the, the, the standard way that you ask for help. And I've never been that keen on flares. I, I used to be in a, a sailing club, and once a year they would get the RNLI round in the Coast Guard, and we would have practice firings of flares, and some of them wouldn't go off at all, and they were very difficult to dispose of. The Coast Guard would bring, a, bring an iron box to put them in, and... Others, you need to wear gloves. Now, if you're sea kayaking, how can you set off a flare if you don't have a great big thick leather glove? And it's not a thing I tend to carry when I'm kayaking. And, you know, if a manufacturer came along now and said, well, you know, you've been using PLBs all these years. Here's a better way. Here's a pyrotechnic way. You know, this goes bang. There's a big flash. We've got gunpowder in our stuff. Would that pass health and safety? Would it get any government approvals? No, it wouldn't because they're dangerous. And I remember seeing a demonstration by uh, a Scottish sea kayak coach, Gordon Brown, who I believe you may know of as as well. Gordon's a a great guy. And uh, he was demonstrating for one of his DVDs firing a rocket flare. And it was cam water and uh, it wasn't being thrown about, but the recoil of it was just horrendous. And uh, Simon Willis had taken a video for the DVD and a frame from that video actually shows this. He was holding on to the sheet of flame that came out of the thing because the body of the flare had exploded downwards and then actually bounced off his spray deck. And I thought, I'm not going to have anything to do with flares, so I don't carry any flares now. I have a PLB and a green laser flare for attracting people. You know, once the helicopter is in the general area, I've got a green laser flare that I can flash at them. And they're legal to flash at aircraft. They're, they're, they're a broadband laser rather than a very pinpoint laser, which can damage their night sight and their eyes. So I've, I've turned it round to talk about safety things rather than necessarily kayaking things that's just general safety and some of my friends believe that it is not safe to kayak on your own and in Scotland and I'm sure other places never less than three should there be and I think that's because many people grow up in clubs where there's been generations of beginners being taught by the older members and then carrying that on. And I've never been in a sea kayak club, funnily enough. We're a group of peer paddlers and it's a different way of looking at it. 
but I, I do enjoy being on my own. But equally, I tend not to go camping on my own simply because I just enjoy the companionship around the campfire. So I can certainly see why you'd enjoy camping with others. It's hard to sit around the campfire alone and tell stories. It's very difficult. <laughs> I don't drink much alcohol, but I do like whiskey. And this is another thing about Scotland. Imagine going to the island of Isla, all round Isla. Most islands have got occasional white buildings called lighthouses. Well, Isla has got huge white buildings, all with their names on and their distilleries. And there are a great navigational aid because, you know, they have the name on them. So there's Lagavulin, there's Ardbeg and Beaumore. And, you know, it's a fantastic part of Scotland is the whisky. I only drank too much whisky once, and that was on my 18th birthday. Never, ever drunk more than a, a nip or two I, since then. But in a kayak camp, I just loved being able to... We all take a different malt whisky, and we share it out. And I, it's lovely just comparing and contrasting the, the malt whiskies around a smoky fire. And some of the malt whiskies from Isla are so smoky that... Possibly you wouldn't even need a fire to get smoke. It's just part of Scotland. I'm very, very lucky that I've got such good paddling so close to me. I've got a friend, um, JB, if you're listening, this one's for you, that I know would love to meet you around the campfire one time when they have that whiskey tasting. Oh, that would be, that would be marvelous. So yours has been a fantastic, uh, wonderful conversation full of a, a lot of different directions. We covered a lot of ground. How can listeners reach you if they've got additional questions and would like, love to learn more from you? Well, I, I would be delighted to hear from anyone because I've always been happy to communicate with other sea kayakers. And that can either be done through my blog, www.seakayakphoto.com. And sea kayak photo is all one word. Or I'm under Douglas Wilcox on Facebook and my header will either have a kayak or a surf ski or a windsurfer on it. I change it from time to time. At the moment, I think I've got a, a, a sea kayak a sunset of the small isles on it. I'd be very pleased to hear from people either of those ways. Or if you want to put my email address, which you have, onto the, the, the link that goes with the podcast. I'd be very happy to hear from people by email as well, John. All right. Well, I will be certain to put all those contact uh, methods in our show notes where folks can pick those up and, and learn more. So I do have one final question for you, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I would undoubtedly say Gordon Brown. Gordon and his wife Morag have contributed such a huge amount by their personal tuition, by Gordon's books and by Gordon's DVDs. But I understand that I, he's already been suggested to you. So I'm going to mention another Scot. And sorry for being nationalist. I'm not <laughs> really nationalist. I'm if you look at my Facebook page, you'll see I've got friends from all over the world. I, I'm going to mention another Scot, and that's Alistair Wilson, the Olympian who inspired me to take up paddling in 1964. And a good reason for contacting Alistair Wilson is that he is the man behind Lendl Paddles. Now, although Lendl in Scotland is no more, I, two companies still carry on the tradition, Lendl North America and Celtic Paddles in uh, Wales. The other thing is Alistair has just written a book which I am enjoying immensely. And it's a sort of an autobiography, but there's just all sorts of bits about paddling in it as well. And it's called Behind the Paddle. I'll connect with you separately, and we can uh, connect with Alistair Wilson, and maybe we can connect with Gordon Brown as well, and maybe get them both on the show. So, uh, Oh, I think you have to get Gordon on. So, Douglas, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, really appreciate hearing all about your stories through, uh, through Scotland, your stories of testing, and, and that knee. Wow, that's quite a story. Well, it's, it's, life is about adapting and it's all about if something happens, don't let it spoil your day. Look at ways of getting some good out of it and just keep going. That's right. Well, carry on. Have a great day. Thank you so much, John. Thank you.
If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Ooh, that knee. Wow, that was pretty gruesome, but oddly entertaining. I hope you didn't faint like some of Douglas's friends. His reviews have helped manufacturers make better craft and help countless paddlers make better decisions on boats. As I mentioned during the episode, his reviews have helped me, and I hope that you've benefited as well. Like he said, though, always try a boat before you buy, and at a minimum, sit in the boat, but the best result is going to be to try the boat on the water. I love his enthusiasm for paddling any type of craft, and his recognition that paddling different craft in different ways makes you better in each other discipline. Douglas maintains a blog, and you can find his photography at www.ckayakphoto.blogspot.com. I'll also include a link to that in the show notes. Don't forget, you'll also find links in the show notes to onlinecayaking.com. And remember to enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next guests will be Jonathan Hearn and Katie Sylvester. Jonathan and Katie embarked on an 88-day trip along the main coast and through the Canadian Maritimes. So join us for their adventure and hear about their experience through this beautiful coastline. Thank you again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.